This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity with Dan Monroe. Alrighty, welcome back to Brojo Online. Now, I've had quite a few requests for people to meet, uh, for me to dig deeper into my history working with criminal offenders. I mention this a lot in my book, Nothing to Lose, the kind of lessons and the, the similarities that came up for me when I worked with a group of people whom I originally considered to be somehow different to me. And if you're like most people, unless you've spent a lot of time in court or in prison, you'd think of criminals as being this kind of separate group that you don't resonate with, and you know they're fun to watch on the movies, but they're like an alien species to you. You just you don't see yourself as being similar to them. Well, I was rudely awakened from that misbelief. You know, as I worked with them, I came to realize I have a lot in common with them. In fact, they are just human beings, even though they do some horrendous you know, pieces of behavior. They're really not that different to me, even though I've never really done the kind of stuff that they've done. I've never done anything that's worth going to court for or uh, going to prison for. And yet I was very, very similar to these people. And you are too. What was amazing to me, I think, is that I learned from them. I learned some important lessons. I'm going to share 10 of those with you today. I learned some very important lessons from from criminal offenders. They taught me, either by attacking me or by educating me. And I want to share those lessons with you. And these these are a group of people that are worth listening to because they live outside of the rules. They live in the Wild West. You know, the criminal underworld is this crazy place. It exists. It's in every city. It's in every country. It's a place where the rules are different. There are entire community. They all know each other. They all deal with each other and fight each other, and they have gangs and groups and organizations and allegiances, and they even have laws of their own that they follow, rules that need to be obeyed that have nothing to do with the rule of law. And of course, they all have the one thing in common, which is the ability to consciously break the rules, the rules that society has set. There's a lot to be learned from this. I'll start with a little backstory. How I became to work, came to work with these guys, and, and a brief overview of my history working with them. So I did a psychology degree in my early 20s, and I didn't want to stay and do a master's or a doctorate because I'd had enough of studying. I found it kind of boring. I mean, I was interested in psychology, but I was sick of theory. I wanted practice, and I didn't want to spend another 200 years at school just to get a doctorate. But as I left into the workforce, I found out that a psychology degree is basically fucking worthless. There is, like, no job that uh, just a degree will get you. So I went off and did a sales job. I went at landscaping. I was basically farting around doing all this stuff that had nothing to do with psychology because there was nothing I could do with psychology. Long story short, eventually, after some searching, I came across a job called probation officer which I had literally never heard of before. I'd heard on TV programs of a parole officer, the American version, which turned out to be actually quite different, but I'd never heard of a probation officer. All I knew is that they really looked fondly upon people who had psychology degrees when it came to hiring, and that I'd actually get to do psychological stuff with people and with interesting people, criminals. Uh, a group of people that I'd been at the fringe of, you know, going to West Auckland High School and having mates that did a lot of drugs and stuff, you know, I, I had a, a sniff of the criminal world, but not much more than that. 
And we're talking about working with people who are in gangs, murderers, serial rapists, organized crime, proper criminals. So I applied and got the job. Uh, there was about six months training, even more at the start, before I was even allowed to go face-to-face with a criminal offender. I mean, I was allowed to sort of observe from the sidelines, and already that was, like, electrifying. You know, I remember one time, one of the earliest days, we went on a home visit where you go to a criminal's house. I was just observing, and he was the leader of the local Mongol mob gang. And I just remember he had a dog the size of a horse. And this dog had already put holes in a massive solid wood fence by just smashing its head through this big, like, Rottweiler-looking beast thing. And he was sitting there having a nice little cup of tea while other huge tattooed gang prospects run around cleaning, cooking, making us tea like servants. They were almost like maids. It was the most bizarre experience to be waited on by a guy who could, like, crush me with one hand. You know, to see this, I was like, this is a different world I'm looking at here. This is something so far out of my bubble. I can't even begin to understand it. You have to be born into this world to understand it. And, and that's how it started. And then I remember seeing my first ever criminal offender. It was so, it was such an epic moment for me that even though it's been well over a decade since I saw him, I can remember his entire name, first and last name. I won't say it, of course. But, uh, you know, he sat down in front of me. And I don't know what I expected. I was all excited and nervous, like, holy shit, I'm about to talk to a criminal. This guy in particular had um, committed a a rather minor, comparatively minor domestic violence offense. Because they always start off new probation officers with the the lower level guys. And he was just like the nicest guy. He was just a dude I could easily hang out with. I probably worked with guys like that and various trades and stuff that I've been involved in. He wasn't something weird. That was the thing that I remember the most, was like, he just talked like a normal person. He talked like anybody would who had to go to some interview with some government official. You know, he talked like I would. You know, so I, that was my first impression. I'm like, huh, that wasn't weird. And that's what the weird bit was for me. I'm like, it's just a dude. I, I can party with a guy like this. I could have a beer with a guy like this. I could just chat. And as the years rolled by, I I was slowly introduced to higher level offenders, the higher risk ones, the crazier ones, the psychopaths, the very violent, the the leaders. And yet this thing never escapes me that they're not that weird. I mean, there are some incredibly dangerous psychopathic individuals out there, and I've met them. The thing is, it's just when you're in a conversation with one of them, they're not that bizarre. They're really not. In fact, the the most dangerous, most manipulative guys, you wouldn't tell them apart from anybody else. That's that's kind of their charm. That's their trick, is they know how to not stand out. Anyway, over these many years, I was taught some very painful lessons. Some of them were lessons directly from experiences with criminal offenders. I'll probably share you some stories, share some stories with you uh, today. And others were pieces of training that I received about psychology that were important, that were applied to both me and criminal offenders. And others were just kind of hypotheses or theories that formed after seeing literally hundreds if not thousands of criminal offenders and diving deep into their lives, like one little case study at a time, and seeing patterns and seeing resonance and seeing things that I did myself manifesting in their lives and so on. 
So these are in no particular order of importance. I don't know which of these 10 lessons are the most important, but start with number one. The thing that immediately came to my mind was manipulation. That was a word that didn't really feature much in my lexicon before working with criminal offenders. Once I started working at Department of Corrections, where manipulation came up almost every single day. Because when you work with criminal offenders, you are going to be manipulated consciously, deliberately, and frequently. And one of the biggest lessons I learned, first and foremost, is that everyone can be manipulated. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how clever and street smart you are. There is someone out there who's much better at it than you are, and you will not see it happening. It's subtle. It's beautiful. It's art. You cannot see it taking place. It's not like on the movies or TV programs where they have to like emphasize someone, make them look really obvious when they're lying or when they're being tricky. You know, it's it's so much more subtle and soft than that. The people who do it well, you don't see it. You just feel uncomfortable and you don't even attach it to them. I was successfully manipulated many times. I I've had, you know, there are crimes that have been committed under my watch because somebody was able to trick me into thinking they weren't being committed. And some of those rest pretty heavily on my conscience. You know, there have been children who have been sexually abused partly because the abuser was able to successfully manipulate me so that I looked the wrong direction. These are the kind of guys who can manipulate anyone. They, Some of them even have court conditions where they're not allowed to speak to certain people because of how powerful their voice is. Their voice is like a weapon. These are people who have been manipulating, psychopathically manipulating others since they were like infants, since they were toddlers, they knew how to do this. They've been training at it. So when I meet a 50-year-old manipulative pedophile, he's had 50 years of training um, and expertise in something I haven't even tried yet. You know, I didn't stand a chance against someone like that, and you don't either. If you right now think that nobody can get one over on you, you are the easiest victim. The easiest. Not even, like, middle of the pack. I've spoken to plenty of prisoners and said, you know, how do you choose your guy? How do you choose the the corrections officer that you're going to manipulate to bring drugs into prison? And who, who are you going to corrupt? And they say, well, we look for two people. One, the guy who's got no friends. The isolated guy who's going to need approval from others. And two, the arrogant guy who thinks he's too smart for us. Those two are our favorites. They're the easiest. And the best is when that is one and the same person. The arrogant guy thinks he's better than other people. Right, the person who thinks he's too smart. That is the easiest target. It's their favorite target. They can play that guy like a guitar. But I did learn how to manage manipulation. Managing manipulation doesn't mean you can't be manipulated. It actually starts on the basis that you can be, and so you're constantly doing kind of reconnaissance and back-checking. You're constantly checking in, have I been manipulated? Am I being manipulated? And then doing corrective behavior. Becoming immune to manipulation isn't so much about it not affecting you. It's about it not affecting you for very long. It's about being totally humble to its presence and the people's, you know, and, and the ability of people to manipulate you. Being able to check in on that, trust your instincts, trust your emotions as you react to people and kind of rewind the clock, see what's happened and correct it. But there's two things I really learned about manipulation that everyone needs to know. 
Well, three things. I've already said one of them. One is that other people are better at it than you are. So just put your false arrogance aside. You're not going to be immune to this. Assume other people are already manipulating you and you can't see it. Number two. In order for someone to manipulate you, there needs to be something they can use. Put it like most simple terms, someone can't blackmail you unless you want to keep a secret, right? Somebody cannot intimidate you unless you're afraid of violence. Somebody cannot flatter you unless you're needy for approval. Somebody cannot invalidate you unless you're already unsure of yourself. There's something in you that they use. And the master manipulators, they have an instinct for it. They look at you, they listen to you talk, and they figure out what your thing is. And then they know how to, like, jam a finger into that hole and just start kind of teasing. So you've got to understand, if you want to become genuinely immune to manipulation as much as humanly possible, you need to make it that you don't need anything from anyone else. Okay, you don't need to be better than other people. You don't need approval from other people. You don't need protection from other people. You don't need to keep any secrets, and so on. Someone can only manipulate you if you want to hide something. And that's why manipulation cannot survive vulnerable honesty. It is the absolute cure-all medication, it is the chemotherapy for manipulation, is pure, raw honesty, and in particular, honesty about how you feel. You imagine, like, in a much more realistic day-to-day situation, like... You're buying a television from a store, one of those stores, and the guy's doing his sales pitch, you know, and you wanted this smaller television, less expensive, and he's trying to upsell you to the big one, and he's just pouring it on. Now, what's going to be happening, the dishonesty that will be happening is that you know he's doing sales techniques and you're uncomfortable with them, but you don't say it. That's the bit he's actually using. He knows that you're uncomfortable being pushed around by sales techniques, but he'll actually use that discomfort to get you to buy the thing just to end it. That's how a lot of sales techniques work, is it's not that he thinks, oh man, this guy really loves me being pushy. He knows you don't, but he also knows that you're so uncomfortable with the pushiness that eventually you go, okay, I'll just buy that one then. Like, God, just leave me alone. In order to avoid manipulation, you'd say, look, I'm really uncomfortable with these pushy sales techniques. You know, they make me nervous. They make me feel a lot of pressure. It's very, it's very difficult for the guy to keep doing them after you say something like that. But you have to admit to that weakness. You have to admit, I'm being manipulated. When someone was intimidating me, at the beginning of my career, I used to pretend like I wasn't scared. And that's actually what they used against me. You know, my, my attempt to pretend I wasn't scared was like something they could push against. That's why they used intimidation. Later on, I learned how to say, look, I'm feeling quite intimidated by your behavior. You know, I'm getting a sense of violence from you and it scares me. Now that sort of admitting to weakness thing actually neutralized it. Because now every time they do it, I can go to the other people witnessing it saying, see, he's doing it again. He's looming, you know. He's staring me in the eyes. And that neutralizes it. Now he can't use it because it's going to get called out all the time. So that kind of honesty, calling out manipulation, I learned that that's the ultimate cure to it. You can't stop it happening to you, but you can call it out, and it loses all its power. So that's number one. Number two, addiction cycles. One of the things that I resonated most with criminal offenders is that committing a crime is usually simply a poor piece of behavior. It is an unhelpful, non-valuable piece of behavior. 
that's all committing a crime generally is. There's very few crimes that are like, yeah, this is me living by my values and doing something productive for my life. It's usually the opposite to that, in most cases. And when you realize, well, actually, things that are legal can still be very unhelpful pieces of behavior. Binge eating, for example. Secretly masturbating to porn. Not standing up for yourself. Bullying people. None of these things are illegal, and yet they all follow the exact same psychological process as committing a crime. Okay, And that process comes down to a, a really key point in, in the cycle of addiction, which is the problem of instant gratification. What all of us, criminals and non-criminals alike, suffer from is this dilemma between feeling good now or feeling good later. And because we're emotional mammals, and make no mistake about it, our decisions are made emotionally and nothing else. Whenever we hit this crossroads where I have to choose between feeling good now or feeling good later, and I cannot have both, I am much more likely to choose feeling good now. And what will happen is I will go through a process to convince myself to choose the feel good now option. And that is called the problem of instant gratification. I have a problem where I'm really compelled to be instantly gratified. And I use this justification and minimization process to make this happen. So a criminal offender, for example, would rather steal someone's money than work hard for it. Okay, They'd rather feel good now than feel good later about having earned the money. They'd rather just have the money instantly and have the thrill of like mugging someone or breaking into a house. All that instant gratification. But contrary to popular belief, they're not all like psychopathic and just like, yeah, fuck them. I just love hurting people. They have to talk themselves into it. They have these little stories. And this is where I first started to, you know, open my mind about criminals. Because I always thought they just didn't give a shit about people. And they didn't feel guilt. But that's only a few of them. Most of them do feel remorse. And because of this, they have to come up with a story. Like, this guy's insurance will cover him. You know, he's he's already rich or... The white man has stolen so much from my people already. I deserve this. They have this story that basically comes to a single conclusion. I need to feel good right now. And that's justified. And the thing is, you do this too. You do it to talk yourself into eating an ice cream instead of a salad. You do it to talk yourself into getting drunk instead of socializing sober. You do it to talk yourself into delaying applying for that promotion that you're probably going to get rejected for. You use the same process as a hardcore criminal in order to avoid uncomfortable emotions as you do the thing that's actually right for you. And this is what you've got to understand. Your poor behavior, laziness, procrastination, bad decision making, all of that isn't just some lightning striking you and, and you know some bad luck or some poorly wired psychology or anything like that. It is a completely normal human process of trying to get the instant gratification of comfort and security right here, right now. We all do it. You're doing it right now. There's something you're not doing that you're supposed to be doing. There's something that you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing. And it's all designed to make you feel as comfortable as possible emotionally at this very moment. The relief of procrastinating. you know, The joy of tucking into some sugar. The, the mind-numbing of binging on Netflix, whatever it is that's much more comfortable and easy to deal with than acts of honesty and courage and respect and you know determination, all those things are hard. Any addiction, from Netflix through to heroin, follows the same process. 
Okay, I won't go into the whole process now because I've already done a whole podcast on that. You can search for addiction on my SoundCloud channel. But essentially that problem of instant gratification. Now the solution I found was that you have to be able to bring into that consideration moment the benefits of the long-term delay of gratification. You know, rather than just going, God, I need an ice cream now. Or, like, it shouldn't be a choice between having ice cream and not having ice cream. Because that's just deprivation. And deprivation doesn't have a very good argument. You know, say, I can't have something isn't a strong argument. It's not a compelling emotional argument. Your brain isn't going to go, oh, yeah, I love not having stuff. That's a good choice. That's why you always lose that argument. But you can say, I can choose between the brief, tasty sensation of ice cream right now or the pride I'll have in myself if I eat a salad instead. You've got you've to recognize the emotional benefit of delaying gratification. Rather than like, I can't have a cigarette right now. Imagine the joy of the blood flowing through my veins more smoothly and being able to breathe without coughing. Imagine the freedom and relief and the healthiness I'll feel if I was to put the cigarette down and stop smoking it. That kind of thinking. So addiction cycles, that's one of the main things I learned from criminals as well. Similar to that was the cycle of change. Now this is something I learned in training and saw it to be one of the most practically applicable and relevant findings in psychology that I ever came across. I mean, there are a lot of psychological theories that sound good, but they just don't map out very well in a real-life basis with a real-life person. You know, because everything's just done on averages and aggregates, and it's not, you know, it doesn't take into account the millions of variables in the real world. There are a lot of psychological studies that, you know, they're just done on university students in a laboratory, which is actually pretty unrepresentative of some blue collar Joe in his 40s who's struggling with a divorce and a weight problem while the weather gets bad and all these variables are happening. But the main thing I learned about the cycle of change, which I won't go into in full detail, I cover it all in my book, The Legendary Life. There's a couple of key points, and one of those is crisis. You may have heard the cliched term, hitting rock bottom. Well, I worked with a lot of drug addicts, and I came to understand what this term really means. It's about crisis. Even Tony Robbins talks about this. The idea that the pain of staying the same has to be worse than the potential pain of change for somebody to actually want to change. I used to think motivation was a positive emotion. I used to think motivation was some sort of happy feeling, some joy, some passion. But it's not. Motivation is pain. Motivation is crisis. Motivation is fuck this shit. It has to change. It's frustration. It's despair. It's it's particularly anger. The problem is that the reason why most people engage in ongoing destructive behavior is because they're not angry about it. Not angry enough. And that's usually because they're not facing it truthfully. One of the things I learned to do, I do it now as a coach, is to hurt people in order to help them. And the way I do that is to create a crisis. And I don't mean I go and interfere with their life. What I mean is I have a conversation with them where they have to face the bleak truth about their behavior. So I might be talking to a nice guy, for example, and I'll say, okay, so you've got a son. You're his role model. He's watching you. So what is he learning when you bow down and try to please people all the time? What kind of boy will he grow up to be if you keep doing this in front of him? How much will he respect you as a man as he grows up? And I ask those questions that he's been avoiding because it's so comfortable to be a people pleaser. 
And I say, okay, so you're the kind of father you want to be right now? Is that, that going well for you? You happy with that? Because he needs to be really emotionally upset about the way he's being in order to change into something better. And the same with criminal offenders. You know, I used to get this with guys in the gangs all the time. They really liked being in the gangs, or they liked being in and out of prison. So it'd be okay. So statistically speaking, because you've been in prison, your son is four times more likely to go to prison than any other boy. So, are you looking forward to him going to prison? Because it's almost definitely going to happen at this point. You know, and I just start asking those hard questions that create a crisis, a, a, a existential crisis if needed, but a crisis of kind of like, is this really what you want to be living? you got one life and the way you're doing it, you're cool with that? You can't think of any better way to do it. That's the best you can come up with. So that transparency is needed for someone to change. For you to change, if you're looking at a piece of behavior in life, oh, why do I keep doing this stupid shit? It's because it doesn't hurt you enough yet for you to be brave enough to try the other way of living. And the reason it doesn't hurt you is because you're not facing the truth about it. You're lying to yourself about how bad it is. You're justifying it. You're minimizing it. You're saying, oh, it's just a bit of people-pleasing. Who's it going to hurt? Instead of saying, oh, you know what? Maybe my chronic anxiety and depression is because I'm being fake and full of shit with everybody I love all the time. You're not facing that truth. Hey, I'm a manipulative bastard, the kind of person I actually hate right now. You're not facing that kind of truth. And because you aren't, it doesn't hurt enough for you to go, okay, fuck this, I've got to do something about it. This isn't an option anymore. This is the way I was able to get through to criminals. I had to get them to the point where being a criminal was worse than not being one. Because there's a lot of great things about being a criminal. You know, easy money, people understand you, do whatever you want all the time. There's a kind of hedonistic lifestyle in the criminal world. But in order to enjoy that, you have to ignore all the arrests, all the prison time, constant threat of violence, the poor health, the poverty, the drug addiction, the bad role modeling for your kids, the not having a meaningful life, all those things that they generally try to avoid. It's also important to notice in the cycle of change that relapse is inevitable. A lot of people give up after they relapse. They're trying their best to change their behavior and then one day they just don't do it properly or they slip or stress overcomes them and they just fall off the wagon. And they don't realize that this is part of it. They think, oh, fuck it, I can't do it. Right? I'm like, oh, yeah, drop the ball today. Oh, back on the horse tomorrow. Because relapse is definitely going to happen. Any change you're trying to make, you are going to fuck it up. And that will happen for the rest of your life. You'll never completely correct something. You'll always be at risk of a, of a slip. So rather than treating that as a failure, you treat it as an inevitable consequence of old wiring in your brain competing with new wiring. That's all it is. It's just two electrical circuits battling it out for control, and they're each going to win sometimes. Your job is to make sure that you get the other one back on top as soon as possible. Not that you prevent the relapse necessarily, but that you recover from it very quickly. There's no point in beating yourself up for it, because you may as well beat yourself up for just being a human being. And the final thing I learned from Cycle of Change, contemplation is not change. Thinking about change is not change. You could have all these new ideas, you've read all these books, you're telling people all these great new things that you think and believe. Doesn't matter. If your behavior is the same, doesn't matter. Number four, you are your social circle. You just can't beat your environment, unfortunately, and this is one of the, the greatest pains in being a probation officer. Is you'll be working with somebody, you do all this great work in a session, you make all these big changes, but you only spend 15 minutes with them. 
And then they go and spend the next entire week surrounded by pro-criminal friends and family. 15 minutes cannot compete with that. When they come back to you next week, they will be the same. They will not have changed. That is one of the most frustrating things that actually led me to leave the Department of Corrections. is because I just couldn't compete with the environments that these people lived in. And often, you know, quite uh, ironically, the law would force them to stay there. Like they'd have to live at a certain address after prison, and that address would just be full of criminals, right? One of the reasons I got into coaching is actually I could work with people who are freer to change their environment. Because I promise you, no matter how hard you're working on yourself, even if you're getting coaching and stuff like that, if you're surrounded by a family who's unsupportive and antisocial and victim mindset, and you've got friends who aren't doing anything valuable with their lives and constantly giving you shit about trying to change yourself and if you're if you're living in that environment, if your job sucks, your job requires you to compromise your principles, you're not going to change very well. Okay. So give yourself like a plant. While you can do a lot of things as a plant to ensure your growth, your soil basically makes or breaks you. The soil is your social environment. It's who you spend time with. There's that old kind of self-help saying that you are the combination of the five people you spend the most time with. What I learned for criminal offenders is actually your combination of everybody you spend time with, not just the top five. Every single person you talk to influences you. Every time you have a conversation with some pessimistic victim who doesn't think there's any point in living, your pessimism goes up. And every time you spend time with someone who's responsible and optimistic and tries to solve problems, your responsibility is improved. If nothing else, when it comes to self-development, you've got to surround yourself with good people. That was why we invented Brojo in the first place, to make a community where you can spend as much time as possible with people who are pro-integrity, pro-honesty, pro-valued living, who will encourage you to do what's right for you rather than discourage you so that they can get their own rewards. You know, you might think, well, look, I've got to go spend some time with my parents, even though they totally break my spirit. No, if you're doing that, you're resetting yourself to zero. You cannot protect yourself from their influence. The brain cannot not be influenced. You can tell yourself, oh, I'm not affected by people. That's just a lie. You absolutely are. Every single one of us is. Just seeing someone walk down the street affects you. Your brain registers that information, it writes pathways in the brain, it retains memories, those memories affect your beliefs, on and on. You're totally affected by everything you see, touch, smell, hear, taste. So make sure those things are as good as possible. Because if there's more bad things than there are good things, then you're going to go bad. Simple as that. Number five. One thing that most criminals have in common, a victim mindset. See, like I said before, most criminals aren't actually callous and malicious. They don't actually, like, uh, they're not psychopathic. They are victims in their own minds. They're the ones who are being harmed in their minds. It's amazing how often I'll have a guy beat up his wife and then tell me how it was her fault. I've had guys who have molested children and blamed the children for it. And they mean it. This isn't a game. They've already been sentenced by the time they come to see me. They can't get any less of a sentence. They're already in trouble. And yet they're still trying to tell me that it's not their fault. This is what victims do. Victims say, my life is unfair, therefore bad behavior is justified. You know, And you'll do that too. 
you'll say, well, other people are richer than me or smarter than me or taller than me or a different skin color than me that makes things easier for them and therefore I can do shitty things. That is the victim mindset, blaming your choice for your terrible behavior on something outside of yourself. And what I learned working with criminal offenders is that confidence problems, especially neediness, explains pretty much all bad behavior. Everything from drink driving through to rape and murder, everything in between, can usually be explained by insecurities and neediness. Shame is one of the central drivers of criminal behavior and of all other bad behavior. That may be legal, but is definitely bad for you. So you got to understand that the victim mindset, blaming something outside of yourself for your situation, is the catalyst for shitty behavior. Right? And then you get in a loop where you then blame your shitty behavior on somebody else, like, well, I had to do it because she made me. And then you're back to being a victim again, which justifies further shitty behavior, and round and round you go. Responsibility is one thing that most criminal offenders lack. They don't say, I'm in charge of my life. They say, I'm reacting to things that have happened to me. This is justified. When they steal, it's because they started disadvantaged. And they don't have an education, so they have to. That's their story. When they beat the shit out of someone and say, well, it's because my dad beat me and that's all I know. Right? When they join a gang, it's because society wouldn't accept me. When they murder, she drove me to it. It's always somebody else's fault that you chose to do something horrendous. And you'll do the same thing. Well, I had to eat this chocolate because my boss was mean to me today. Or I couldn't apply for this job because my boss doesn't support me. You're always blaming someone else for your shitty decisions. Just know that when you do that, you're no different to a hardcore criminal. Okay? You guys are doing the same shit to justify your crappy behavior. We all do it. And the change comes when you go, you know what? Everything I do is my choice. No matter what happened to me, it's my choice as to how I react to that. So I'm choosing to eat this ice cream instead of being healthy. I'm choosing to disrespect my body right now. I'm choosing to deprive myself of that promotion. I'm choosing to be hard on myself rather than smart. Once you start talking to yourself like that, you'll find it a lot harder you know, to, to do stupid things. And this is, this is what works with criminal offenders as well. When I, got, when I got them to a place where they had to constantly say, like, I'm choosing to do this, I don't have to, but I'm going to choose to, it made it a lot harder for them to do things like beat up their kids or sell drugs to their kids or join gangs or harm people. Number six, going in a slightly different direction now. What I learned from people who escape prison, which is a metaphor if I've ever heard one, but I'm talking about actually escaping actual prison. Prison escapes are an incredible feat of human ingenuity. If you've ever been inside a prison, you'll know what I'm talking about, especially a maximum security prison. I remember the first time I walked into one, or I was led through one, as one gate behind me closed after another, people scanned me and cameras everywhere as I went deeper and deeper into the bowels of the thing and there were more and more locked doors behind me, this one thought occurred to me, there's no fucking way anyone could get out of this place unless they were allowed to. And yet there are people who escape. There's one guy, he's quite notorious in New Zealand, he's escaped from maximum security prison twice. When I can't even imagine how anyone could do it once. He's done it twice. So that means the second time he did it, he was already registered in the system as somebody who's high risk of escape 
and he was still able to do it again. Not only that, this guy was already one of the top six maximum security prisoners of New Zealand. He's a basically a prisoner celebrity. He's one of the highest risk criminals in the country, and he was able to escape prison twice. Nobody is watched more than this top six group. Okay, they have like four staff members each watching over them, and yet he was able to escape. And the funny thing was, it wasn't some bizarre Shawshank Redemption, 20 years tunneling through the wall kind of clever shit. One time, he just stole a uniform and walked out. Another time, he literally cut the fence open. There were very basic things that is almost kind of an anticlimax. Like, that's all he did? How the fuck did he do that? I thought he'd have to, you know, hire a helicopter and, you know, get plastic surgery to change his face. Or No, he just basically walked out. And the thing what I learned from him was, when I walked into a prison, my first thought is I was intimidated by all the locks and the guards and the doors and the cameras and the, the smell of fear that permeates a prison. It's indescribable, like, body odor. I realized my first thought was, I can't get out of here. And I didn't realize that with that thought, I was forming a belief. I was making it true. Even though I'd never tried to escape, I'd already decided it was impossible. Whereas this guy... He walked into a prison, and he asked himself a slightly different question, which is, how do I get out of here? Which opens his mind to look for possibilities, possibilities that other people overlooked, especially the staff. So when he cut his way out of the fence, all he did was he behaved very well for an extended period of time until he got workshop privileges. And then he simply stole a grinder, hid behind a shed that was built too close to the fence, I think it was, and then just cut a hole in the fence. He had been looking for that opportunity, and as soon as it arose, boom, he caught it. I would have never seen that opportunity, because I would have already cut off the possibility of escape by thinking, I can't get out of here. And I see this so much on the outside. Okay, I see this so much in my work. I see people tell me, oh, I can't leave my country because of the laws, and people tell me, I can't quit my job because of my kids. People tell me, I can't lose weight because I'm too tired. They've already decided they can't because they haven't, they've barely tried, if ever. Someone tried once and failed and they go, oh, well, there's proof. Because they had actually already decided that they couldn't. And they just need to see a failure to kind of lock it in. But a guy like this, a guy who's escaped from maximum security twice, you have no idea. That's like climbing Mount Everest. It's so fucking hard to do. He just went, how can I do it? And then he had patience. He had patience to look for opportunities, to test, to try things. Probably helps that he was a fucking genius, but that's no excuse for you. There was another guy who's the most expensive prisoner in New Zealand's history. He actually went in a very minor offence, but he causes so much damage in prison that they never let him out, because he keeps getting in more trouble. They spent something like a million dollars designing an unbreakable cell to house this guy in, because he destroyed property all the time. He's only a little guy. So they made this cell where everything was like moulded, Absolutely molded. There was no gaps. There was no edges. There's nothing you could get a grip on. It's essentially a cell where everything is a single piece. They locked him in there and they said, you know, he'll never break this fucking thing. He destroyed the cell in 48 hours. What he did is he took a piece of elastic from his waistband, turned it into a tiny little rope. And he found the slightest edge of a corner of a piece of metal. He worked the rope behind it. And then just started slowly leaning on it. And he did this for hours, just leaning back and forth. 
until the metal started to prise open. After that, it was simply a matter of getting his strong little fingers in there. Once he got one piece off, he used that as a weapon to destroy the rest. million dollars worth of damage. He did. One guy, 48 hours. Now, that's not necessarily the healthiest use of, of, of a talent, but the point is, your potential, your capability, is always way beyond what you believe it is. And that isn't some sort of Tony Robbins motivational speech shit. It's just hard fact, scientific fact, that what you think you can do is so much lower than what you can actually do. And we know this because you can see human beings just like you, with really no major differences, no significant differences, doing things that you think are impossible, like escaping maximum security prison, like breaking something without even having tools, like climbing Everest, like starting a business, like finding a partner for life. All these things that you have written off as impossible, they simply said to themselves, how do I do it? And they kept asking that question, how do I do it? Every time they failed, okay, what's another way? What's another way? That's your problem. As you stopped asking, you said, okay, that didn't work, I give up. This is too hard, it's impossible. But you've never been accurate when you said that. If you can find even a single other human being who can achieve what you're trying to achieve, then it's possible. You might have to do it a slightly different way. It might take you longer, whatever. But you can do it. So when you decide that you can't do something, know that you've decided that. Take responsibility and say, I'm giving up, not it's impossible. You're just saying I'm giving up. It is possible, but I'm too weak to deal with the pain of, of dealing, of, of learning it, or whatever. Carrying on from that, number seven, weaknesses are strengths. What I found is when I looked at criminal behavior, you know, when I first got there, I was quite frustrated because we used to always deal with it like it was a problem. You're trying to solve the problem. You're trying to fix the person. These people do bad things, and we want to try and stop them doing the bad things. But during my time in corrections, strength-based practice, uh, what's sometimes called positive psychology, started to really emerge in the forensic system. It started to become something that was working a lot in Scandinavian countries. And, so, and in Canada, I think, and we started to apply it. And this is basically you start looking for what the guy's good at, rather than focusing all your attention on what he's bad at. But I took it a step further. I looked at the bad behavior and looked for the strength underneath that. And this whole new world emerged to me. So, like, I might have a guy who's a thief, and I think, oh, it takes a lot of courage and planning to be a thief. A guy who's a drug dealer, well, that takes business savvy. It also takes incredible psychological knowledge to be able to read people, manipulate them, and so on. Same with the gang leaders. I mean, these were leaders. Just because they're leading a gang doesn't mean they're any less of a leader. They're, they're people who could control guys who are twice their size who could kill them in an instant. They had them do the killing for them. Even people who resisted against me in my efforts to help them. Resistance is strength. Resistance is power. It's assertiveness. It's self-respect. I didn't realize it for many years, but all the crime I was seeing and all the problems that these guys were causing me when they came to see me were all simply misdirected strengths. They weren't weaknesses. The weakness was the direction. So, for example, if, if you're a people pleaser, the strength is in supporting people, being compassionate, caring, intuitive. The weakness is why you're doing it, which is to make people like you. And the weakness is that you're not doing it for yourself. You only, you know, you sacrifice yourself to help others. 
So the weakness is actually your intentions, not the behavior. The behavior can be strong and, and the, the talent and skills that you need to do that behavior can be put to good use. I use a lot of people-pleasing behavior as a coach. I just don't do it to make people like me anymore. I do it to help people. So like my old ability to try and guess what people are thinking, I've now honed that into almost psychic ability. When someone talks to me, I can read between the lines. So I've turned what was a weakness and called me, caused me endless worry and mind games, leading me to manipulate into something that serves me as a coach. And you're the same. There's a lot of the things that you think are weaknesses. So even like your ability to procrastinate, you have to tell yourself a pretty creative story to justify your pro- procrastination. You're creative. You're imaginative. Well, I have to do it because of blah, blah, blah. You made that up. You're, you're a fiction writer. You're like George R.R. R. Martin here. Some Game of Thrones shit just to get out of doing the dishes, right? There's a strength in all of your weaknesses that's just misdirected. When you understand that, you have to ask yourself, not how do I stop doing this, but how do I do it in a way that helps me? How do I do it in a way that improves my life? How do I do it in a way that aligns with my values? Number eight, your identity is killing you. A lot of people, when I talk to them about values, one word that often comes up is loyalty. And loyalty is one of the things that I absolutely do not believe is a value. The reason for that is because loyalty is basically blind faith. Loyalty is sticking with something just because of how it was at one stage or because of a commitment you made without updating as it updates. Put it this way. Let's say I'm loyal to a friend. What happens when that friend changes? What if they become, in my words, a bad person? Loyalty demands that I keep staying with them and supporting them, encouraging them, letting them get away with shit. Whereas values would update and say, you know what, this person's no longer worthy of loyalty. Therefore, loyalty must be retracted. But loyalty goes further because people are loyal to their own identity. I became loyal to being a nice guy. You might be loyal to being a funny guy. You might be loyal to being in control. You might be loyal to being whatever. If you're loyal to anything that you think you are, you become inflexible. Your psychology becomes conservative, unable to change, unable to adapt to change. Because who you are is actually totally flexible. It's changed almost every day of your life, probably. I mean, think about how you were as a three-year-old compared to how you are now. You've definitely changed, right? And I think the idea that now you've suddenly figured it all out and no upgrades need to be made is ridiculous. It's just a misplaced loyalty in something that you kind of bet on. It's that sunk cost fallacy. I saw this so much with criminals. You know, loyalty to the gang, being a gang member. Like, oh, I want to wear a fucking patch. It's like, yeah, but now you're a dick. You still want to be that? I'll give you one example. A guy who was in Black Power. You know, he wanted to be in Black Power since he was seven years old. His whole family was Black Power. He was brought up in poverty and crime and drugs and abuse. He joined the gang and it was his shining glory. You know, he joined quite young, got a patch really young, committed a lot of horrendous violent acts to get into the gang and then, of course, stay with the gang. But the years rolled by. Eventually he got into his 50s. Now his hands are all broken and fucked from fighting too much. His brain is damaged from too much drugs and violence. He's not as fast or as quick or as smart as he used to be, and he's no longer really an asset to the gang, and what he found is they no longer had a use for him, so they no longer gave a fuck about him, which is the the dark truth behind most gangs. They sell 
the whole family thing. Uh, but they don't care about you at all. You're either an asset or you're not. And he was left feeling really bereft, like, I gave everything to these guys and they don't give a fuck about me. Who am I now? And yet for many years he clung to it. You know, he always wears patch, you know. He's basically kicked out of the herd now. They retired him, which isn't even a thing you can do in the game. They're just trying to get rid of him. He had been living against the kind of values I recognize his entire life. According to him, he didn't have those values. He valued being mean and hurtful and selfish and manipulative. And one day, I managed to set him up with a, a role modeling opportunity. He went to a basically, uh, we'll call it a youth offender center, to talk to young criminals who were just getting started, just starting to get in enough trouble to like get kicked out of home and stuff. And he gave them a big talk on the realities, like where they're going to end up, what it's like to be him. And he's one of the few guys that these guys would listen to. He's got tattoos all over his face, scars all over his knuckles. He has a very famous name in the criminal underworld. You know, they knew who he was, and you know, they knew somebody had get, gotten their ass kicked by this guy. Like They respected him in their own criminal way. And because of that, they listened to him. And I can't remember the exact results, but there are a couple of them that sort of flew straight after that, who heard what he had to say and took it seriously, and he ended up mentoring them out of the criminal world. And he came to realize that that's actually who he's always been. Helpful, caring, compassionate. He was always exceptional in this way when it came to the gang. He cared a lot about his family and his children. It really bothered him that his children ended up in prison as well. So... He had been loyal to this identity of being a criminal and loyal to his gang. And yet when he started behaving in this other way, he realized, that's who I really am. And, and this, this applies to all of us. You'll be, you'll be loyal to something, but that's not who you are. It's just who you think you are. Number nine. You know who connects best? Drug addicts and recovery. I've seen drug addicts and recovery have better friendships and relationships than totally healthy, law-abiding citizens that I've known for years. I've seen 10-year marriages with people less connected than two drug addicts who met in rehab two weeks ago. Why? Because in rehab, you have to be vulnerably honest, like, all day long. And I just learned this. It it was so long for me, it took so long for me to accept this. Because I'm like, these are drug addicts, you know? And I was really judgmental at the time. Like, these are fucking losers. They can't handle life. And then I just, I, I went, I remember first time I went to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. This criminal guy showed up and I knew him. And I'm like, oh fuck, he's a badass. What is he doing here? Like this was a, like one of our worst guys who's just so hard to manage and nobody can talk to him. And he's just, I thought he was a psychopath. And then he opened up. He didn't realize I was there or he didn't recognize me. He just thought he was surrounded by other addicts. And he just opened up and told them all the kind of stuff that he's not able to tell his probation officer because he'd get in trouble about relapsing on drugs, about yelling at his mom and all this sort of stuff. And he's crying and he's kind of like, I don't want to be this guy, blah, blah. And I looked around the room, I'm like, holy shit, everyone here knows what it's like to be him. They feel it. And they all opened up to him. I realized, fuck, he's got deep connections with the people in this group, deeper than any of my own friendships at the time. And that was a harsh lesson for me. I'm like, looking at this guy who I judged as being a drug addict loser, And he's able to connect with people better than I am, better than I've ever been able to. Who's the one that should be judged here? 
He's more courageously honest than I'd ever been in my life. In that one session, I know he's done this multiple times. In a single session, he was more honest than I've ever been up until that point. There was a shamelessness about him. When he was with this group, he let them see who he really was. He wasn't the tough gangster anymore. He was the scared little boy who, you know, had an ego problem, and he let them all see it. And that's when I realized, you know, I've been trying to connect with people on the light, you know, trying to connect with them by being invulnerable, you know, by being cocky and, you know, funny and nice and trying to share the pleasure, you know, trying to find things in common, blah, blah, blah. Real connections happen on our darkness, the fucked up bits about being a human, the stuff we all have in common yet we never fucking talk about. That's why we love stand-up comedy, you know, because they always talk about the dark shit that we never get to talk about. Our fucked up judgments and assumptions and poor shitty behavior and shame and, you know, the things we hate about ourselves. We never talk about that stuff, and that's why we don't have connections. Drug addicts in recovery have amazing connections with each other. They make friends for life that they never, ever have to lie to. They never have to prove themselves to. You to ask yourself, do you have friendships like that? Where you don't have to pretend at all? Where you don't have to uplift your mood to be around people? We can let them see what you're like. If not, then drug addicts know how to do it better than you. Number 10. Last one. Confidence doesn't look like confidence. When you get into the criminal world, you meet a lot of people who are loud and obnoxious and dominant and arrogant. The so-called alpha males. There's plenty of them in there. And one thing I learned after seven years of investigating people like this, all of them had massive insecurities. And that's actually why they were like that. Confident people, the truly confident ones, and I met a few, only a few in the criminal world, but I also met a few working with criminals. I met some probation officers and stuff that just changed my view on what confidence is. Real confidence doesn't try to dominate other people because it doesn't need to. It doesn't try to make people like them or impress them because it doesn't need to. Real confidence is quiet. I don't mean introverted. An extrovert can easily be confident, of course, but being extroverted doesn't mean you're confident. It just means you're loud. If you're extroverted and you have social anxiety, you'll show off and perform. People think of social anxiety as shyness because they don't realize that all those people who dominate the room, the stars of the show, are actually suffering from confidence problems just as much as any introvert can. You know, there were, there were criminal offenders who were funny and loud and dominant and alpha. And yet, when I finally broke through the mask with them, you know, one-on-one, nobody watching, the truth about them would come out. They're shit-scared all the time. They're constantly worrying what people think about them. They hate themselves. They're suicidal. You know, I remember being woken up to this when a most popular kid in my high school killed himself. And nobody could make any sense of it. Like, why him? He's, you know. But the people who knew him best, it made sense to. They're like, yeah, of course he'd do something like that. Because they knew that under the glamour was misery. The thing is, you look around and you think everybody else is confident except you. I can tell you after working on the concept of confidence for over a decade, most people are not. And the ones who are the loudest and shiniest and brightest are the least. They're just extroverted versions of poor self-confidence. And I loved finding this out because it made me realize, like, actually, I'm feeling like a freak when I'm in the norm. Most people struggle. 
I just didn't realize the loud ones were also struggling. So I'll wrap it up there because it's been about an hour. But those are the 10 lessons, well, 10 of the lessons that I've learned from hardcore criminals. Hopefully there's something for you to think about there. Of course, if you want any more information on any of these, you can send me an email, dan at brojo.co.nz with your questions. I can send you more content. Or, of course, we can talk about coaching if you want to learn how to apply this stuff. Just to summarize it again, number one, manipulation. It cannot survive honesty. Number two, addiction cycles. Your problem with instant gratification and not delaying gratification is the cause of most of your bad behavior. Number three, the cycle of change. You need a crisis. You need to face the truth about how your shitty behavior is going to affect you in the longer term. Number four, social circle influence. You cannot beat your environment, so make sure you're surrounded by encouraging people all the time. Number five, victim mindset explains all bad behavior. You cannot engage in better behavior until you take responsibility for your entire life. Number six, guys who escape prison teach us that anything is possible. The only thing that's impossible is something that you've decided is impossible, and that cuts off all opportunities. Number seven, there are strengths in your weaknesses. All your poor behaviors actually have strengths that you could use if you could redirect them and have better intentions. Number eight, your identity is killing you. Being loyal to being one thing is worse than change. Who you are is flexible, so change it if it's not working for you. Number nine, learn from drug addicts. If you want to connect with people, you must be vulnerable and shameless about your dark side. And number ten, most people are not confident. Being loud, obnoxious, shiny, and alpha is not confidence, it's the opposite. Real confidence is quiet and self-assured. Hope you enjoyed that. Catch you all for the next one. Cheers. <laughs>